This is a kick in the grass with Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Here is Alfonso Davies. Lewandowski with him, Coman with him as well. And again, oh, it's given away though, and that proves to be a catastrophic error. And one of the Bundesliga's rising stars, Alfonso Davies, strikes for Bayern. It's an awful mistake, but Bayern won't care about that. They go 4-2 up. A kick in the grass, episode two, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair with you on, uh, I guess, uh, what we'll call an Alfonso Davies special, Jeff, Mm. here, version of the podcast. Special show for a special player, man. He is uh, he is something else, and uh, you know I think I, I think we need to move beyond the discussion as to whether or not he is the best Canadian men's player in the world. And I'm I'm saying that because I know a lot of folks on Twitter over the weekend had a lot to say about Christine Sinclair's status as the best Canadian player in the world. So I but I think Danny, we need to move beyond discussion of him being the best Canadian player. I, I think he might be. I think he might be the best. Well, would you call him a left back? I don't know. What would you call him? I think. I think. I, I think he's whatever position he plays. He's the best at it in the world right now. And my God, he's he's not even twenty yet. Yeah, he's uh, he, he's got his own position. It's a it's a hybrid. Um, if he stays this way, we might just end up calling it the the Fonzie position in a few mm. years. Uh, let's tell you what's coming up on the podcast. Uh, we'll be joined by John Herdman, Canadian Men's International Manager. Uh, his thoughts on Davies' incredible season and how he's seeing him develop. How he'll use Davies at international level as well. Uh, soccer analyst Alexi Lawless, who claims Davies is not just the best Canadian player, but is the best Concacaf player in the world already as well Uh, so that's what's coming up on the show today and then we've got injury time to close it out a little bit later on um on that thought jeff okay Mm. so davies has the goal and assist this weekend and and twitter's buzzing everybody's falling in love with this kid right now it's it's incredible to see there's so much spotlight on the bundesliga and what byron's doing and he is just absolutely stealing the show but i do feel there's just an inherent um ceiling we put on a player when we see what nation they're attached to and we've never really like we've always felt that in North America and for for Canada especially like you know we've had some good players we've had players that have had good club careers overseas uh, and 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 have really you know decorated themselves. Atiba Hutchinson, Paul Salteri, who we spoke with last week, Craig Forrest, who's been a longtime colleague for us. There's a lot of guys that have had quality club careers, but Davies, being that special player, uh, you know, we we have to stop thinking of just like where his ceiling could be. Like his ceiling is winning the Ballon d'Or. You know, <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. that's where his ceiling is. And if you're 19 and you're dominating the way that that he is. That that's the kind of talk we should be having about this player. And, and and I'll tell you, even to bring it home to a closer level, Danny, I, I gotta say this. When's the last time we've had a soccer player other than Christine Sinclair? When's the last time we've had a, a soccer player that we can say is going to be every year, if not if not the favorite for the athlete of the year award in Canada? And I understand these things are, you know, these things are subjective. But when's the last time we've had a Canadian men's soccer player who's been so dominant internationally that you could say to folks, this guy could be a finalist for our athlete of the year every year for the next 10 years. And people wouldn't argue that. 
I mean, it, it is entirely possible that this guy becomes one of the great Canadian athletes of all time. And that to me, that's so important to soccer because look, we, you know, those of us who played the game, those of us who followed the game, we know how deep the roots are in this country when it comes to soccer. That's, that's understood. But to kind of win the broader argument of where soccer stands culturally for us, we need to have a focal point. We need to have a guy like Alfonso Davies. And what I really like about the Alfonso Davies story in particular, Danny, is this is a kid. He's not from Vancouver. He's not from Toronto. He's not from Montreal. He's from Edmonton. And look, Edmonton's got deep soccer roots. We, it's, it's been a, a long time, you know, the city that has supported the Canadian national team. But, but think about that. The fact that our best player comes from Edmonton and not one of the traditional sort of soccer developmental regions. To me, this makes it even more special. This is the guy Canadian soccer has been waiting for, uh, Danny, for years, for my lifetime. We've been waiting for a guy like this. Yeah. And... Uh... You know, more so down south of the border, uh, the U.S. has had a lot of players that they've hyped up. You know, I can remember uh, first hearing about Freddie Adu, right? And mm -hmm. and the incredible hype that went into that player only to really just, you know, uh, crush him. And, and he never really became much of, of anything, uh, uh, unfortunately for him uh, at the soccer level. But you know, even still, you know, we've we've had a lot of players to get excited about. Same thing. They've had some players that have had really strong uh, club careers in Europe. Uh, Clint Dempsey was strong at Fulham. Uh, Landon Donovan had some success over there. They're, like there's been players uh, that Remember have had Brian that. McBride. Brian McBride, of course, you know, there's, there's been players and a lot of players in the Bundesliga as well. And, and now we're seeing Pulisic and we're seeing, uh, there's hype around Josh Sargent and, uh, Tyler Adams, you know, there's, there's a, a good amount of American players there, but none are, 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 uh, at least I don't think at the level of, of where Davies is at right now. Uh, and what it does for the game in Canada is, is a really interesting conversation to me, what it does for the um, awareness of players in this country, young players, like how many more teams are going to be sending scouts to Canada to be like, where, where can we find the next Alfonso Davies? Right. Uh, is, is there another one that exists? Hell, Atletico Madrid is putting a, you know, a feeder club in the Canadian premier league all mm. of a sudden, like what, what are we, what Davies is doing to, um, just the awareness of what Canada is and breaking down barriers of, well, he's Canadian. He must be shite. Like that's, you know, that's kind of where we're like, these are the kinds of things that a lot of North American players have had to deal with in their lifetime and won't really any longer. No. And, and, you know, we're, we'll be joined later on by John Herdman. And I had a conversation with John at the Olympics in London. And one of his talking points has always been that this is such a, a big country geographically but limited in terms of population. And, and, and the thing that always kind of frustrated him was the fact that he might be missing that player who doesn't live in Vancouver, Montreal, Toronto, you know, wherever. He might end up not being able to get access to somebody who, whether it's a female or male player, is really, really good because of the, the 
the the expanse of the geography in this country. And, you know, yeah, you've got regional training centers and, and everything. But again, it's so important to raise awareness outside of the traditional soccer development regions. And, and again, that's why I get back to Alfonso Davies coming from Edmonton and just that is so important, I think, to the development of soccer in this country. You know, in some ways, it's, it's Desiree Scott coming from Manitoba, coming from Winnipeg and, and being a regular member of the Canadian women's program. You know, that has helped tremendously in the development of the sport in Manitoba and in Saskatchewan and the prairies in general. So it, it's really it's really big that it, it's really important for Canadian soccer that the elite player doesn't slip through the cracks when they're 12, 13 or 14. Yeah. And, uh, hopefully, uh, that, that won't be as much of the case, uh, now. Um, and, and there's so much more development that's going on in this country, uh, than there was in the past, you know, the three Canadian MLS teams, plus the Canadian premier league. Uh, there's just, there, there's more options for players. Um, but I do, believe in the the whole factor of you know canadian kid watching sportsnet on saturday and and watching mm-hmm. davies do his thing is it's like yeah i i mean i guess i can do this too um and in the same way that we've seen it for basketball after the vince carter effect i guess jeff mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. davies davies is gonna have that impact on young canadian players i believe absolutely he is it's um it, it was also fun to to hear the the world the, the commentators on Saturday uh, try to try to discuss the state of Canadian international football, um, and that Davies may never see a World Cup. You know, put him in the same bag as as Gareth Bale or or whatever. Uh, you know, players that have have been there in the past uh, that that you know non traditional countries uh, or have tough time making a World Cup. Uh, but Davies, you know, we are hosting in 2026, so let's remember that. He he will get at least one chance at a World Cup, uh, we do believe. Um, but, you know, that that's that's the kind of effect that he is having, the, the spotlight on the Canadian game. And, uh, you know, in the same, like, I, I think the conversations of is he the best left back in the world are legitimate to me, Jeff. Like, mm-hmm. we talked about Andrew Robertson. Uh, there's Mendy at, at Real Madrid. You know, beyond that, like that's essentially the the shortlist we're talking here, and I think Davies is better all around than those two players. Robertson does a lot offensively, lacks a bit defensively for me. Um, Mendy is great defensively, doesn't do as much work offensively. Davies does both. You know, like that's to me that's where the the crux of the conversation is. Yeah, I think Alfonso Davies. And maybe this is what we're what we're trying to say here. I think he's more of a threat in a greater number of ways than either Robertson or Mendy. Maybe that maybe that's the way I would put it. They're both both phenomenal players, clearly, both masters of particular skills, clearly. But I think Alfonso Davies does more to impose his will on the game than those other two players. And maybe, maybe Danny, maybe part of that is he's in the perfect spot as well. He's got the perfect coach. Look, at the, you know, he, I mean, the service he gets when he does try to try to run run in those gaps. Look at the guys that are passing the ball to him. I, I mean, he's getting immaculate service. He's getting world class service from world class players. But I just think he is more of a multifaceted factor, certainly offensively, than uh, than, than 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 his peers. And that's to me what separates him. 
Yeah, and I uh, being in that team, learning from some of those players. Um, Thomas Muller, I've, I've long called him the Space Invader, um, mm-hmm. just because of what a smart, smart player he is. And um, tactically, it just feels like uh, Davies is is an absolute sponge. Yeah, um, Thomas and- Muller was socially distancing before anybody else in the world. <laughs> <laughs> That's a that's a great point. Um, there was a, a really good article in the province um, this week uh, out here out west uh, with JJ Adams, a uh, friend of mine, and um, he talked about how uh, the, the Whitecaps almost uh, essentially ruined the deal to Bayern uh, by taking uh, Davies' ten percent fee that a player should get uh, out of a transfer, and uh, it's it's not a good look for the club. It's a terrible look actually, uh, but. You know what? What my main takeaway from a positive perspective is: Davies assessed all the different options on the table, um, believed in what Bayern had sold him and the plan that they had to develop him, and what an important decision that was, Jeff. Just in the sense of, if you compare him to Balu Tabla, who had a lot of hype as well coming out of the Montreal Impact, he went to Barcelona's second team and has seemingly fallen off the face of the earth, whereas Davies has continued to develop and. Um, he could have had that option of going into a second team somewhere else and, and not having the options that he's had at Bayern. Um, but that really highlights what is so important for any player that's thinking about going to Europe. You better make the decision of the right decision. And it's not always an easy one. And it's, it's not going to smack you in the face of what is the right one. Uh, but I, I am thankful that that this has worked out so well because so often we see with North American players they go to Europe and they just they just disappear. Yeah, Danny, that's why I really hope that Jonathan David, that the rumors connecting him to perhaps Leipzig or even Dortmund, that they come through because we know that the Bundesliga, uh, we know that the Bundesliga is a proving ground for North American players. Uh, it's a proving ground for young players in general, but it appears to be the one elite league in the world that really almost has a predisposition towards using young North American players. They like coaching them. Fans like watching them. You know, it would be great if, could you imagine if we could have, if we had Jonathan David and Alfonso Davies facing each other in the classicer <laughs> next year, could you, could you imagine that? Like, what would that say for Canadian soccer? That would be, that would be, and never mind that. What would that say for John Herdman, and the Canadian national team? How happy do you think he'd be? Yeah, and the spotlight it would put on uh, on soccer in this country would be incredible and and very good, very positive for a lot of players. Uh, let's let's bring in our next guest. He is uh, the Canadian men's international manager, uh, John Herdman, here on a kick in the grass. Thanks for this, John. How are you? Uh, it's going well, gents. Uh, happy to be back with you and talking some football. Yeah, it's uh, it's been pretty good. Uh, how how are you? How 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 is the family doing? Yeah, everyone's everyone's good, safe, healthy. Uh, BC is seeming to, to to be coming back to some sort of normality, and you know I think we're starting to see a bit of light at the end of the tunnel. So we just got to keep keep following the rules and and making sure that we uh, we take care of our own business here at home, and hopefully we'll be back, John. Uh- I'm interested in what you have thought of the the Bundesliga so far. The first two weeks back, you know, with a medical protocol, health protocol that knock on wood seems to be working. I'm just interested in, in as a sportsman and as a sports administrator and a coach, what type of notes you've been taking out of this. 
Yeah, I think the the biggest thing that stood out in week one was <clears throat> the intensity. You can see that uh, I just felt week one felt almost like preseason. Um, it, it it just lacked that that real edge, and then you know I wondered if part of that was not having the crowd and and not you know as a spectator, not not feeling the game how you normally feel it. But then when I went and rewatched. The games again. I, I started to to see that yeah, that there's an intensity element to it that that's lacking. This week was better for sure, um, and and you can see that one week on, probably three third fourth week in, the intensity will increase. So I'm always trying to look at it from the lens of an international coach that you know when this resumes, what stage of the season are the players in? Have players come back? you know, like the Bundesliga and I've got 13 games under their belts. And this is going to be one of our, I think, our big challenges. You know, what what stage of the preparation are our players going to be in when international resumes? We, we've really got to get our heads around that. Well, for players, it's 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 got to be tough. Um, you know, they've they've been away for, for so long, right? And, and just... Uh, that intensity, as you mentioned, um, maybe not there. And I've, I've noticed it most uh, in, in defending, uh, certainly through the first couple of weeks of the Bundesliga. Have you noticed that too? Yeah, I think you're, you're right. The high pressing was, uh, again, first week, that sort of bite in the press, I, I felt was missing. I'm, I'm talking, you know, you're, you're looking at Bayern. Uh, but this this week, again, you just had to watch RSC Leipzig to see that they they'd started ahead of stride, yeah, it's it's definitely getting better, and it's not something that you're looking and saying, "Oh, this is uh, this isn't the product we're used to." It just it just does have a preseason feel. But then I looked I looked at the care league with with Daniel as well, and and I thought that intensity was right up there. But they've been you know training for a long time and playing sort of pre match friendlies. Um, in, in their progression. So, again, you can just see different teams, different leagues are at different stages of return. But I have to say, the fans, like not having fans in the stadium, it, it just, again, as a spectator, it, it, there's something missing. It, it gives you a sense of that, that emotion that sort of drives the feeling of whether a team's dominating or on the ropes. It's, yeah, there's a definite... Um, Concern for me again coming back to, you know, when international restarts, you know, what it's going to be like for players with an empty stadium. Because I, again, I don't see stadiums filling up too soon uh, with with some of the protocols that will have to be in place. And one of the things that has interested me, John, watching uh, watching the Bundesliga, and uh, I think this ties into what you're talking about with international football as well. It seems to me that without fans in the stands and maybe we'll see this this week in particular but there are teams that might feel slightly more inclined to park the bus or to play defensively because they're not look they're not <laughs> going to have their fans spurring them on right they're i mean if you're playing Bayern, you can sit back and try to hit them the counterattack. nobody's going to be jeering you nobody's going to be with me i'm wondering as as a coach can you see that as being kind of kind of something that we see for the rest of the season here and maybe in international play that you'll have a really sort of tactical, almost a strangling game? I don't know. I think teams have, have, have got their identity and regardless if fans are there or not, they're going to make a decision on 
whether they, you know, go about their business in a specific way based on state of the game or what they need out of it. So I think, you know, a lot of players will have grounds that are there, unpreferred grounds for different reasons. Um, but I would say it, it, it's this simple that the, the fans out of the stadiums, it, it certainly takes away a lot of the scrutiny and the uh, emotional impact you know, fans can have on players. I mean, it's, it's like I think now, we've, imagine going to a Honduras and you're playing in an empty stadium. You know, what, what difference that would have for a Canadian team, a team that's we, we've struggled on the road, whether it's down in Orlando or, you know, we we haven't really broken that um, that code yet of playing away. So, you know, playing at home in, in Toronto, I, I don't know whether that's going to have a massive difference. The fans were awesome last time we were there. But, I mean, we've been used to playing in front of small groups of fans and pockets of fans, whereas, you know, these away fans, it, it typically does make a big difference. So, who knows? I mean, it might work in our favour. But I think listening to a, an interesting podcast recently uh, on Kieran Dyer. He just talked about things like playing through hamstring injuries because he didn't want the shame of that board coming up and having to come off in matches. So playing under, you know, under injury and, and even players that are underperforming that, that tend to just try and grind a game out because they, they don't want the shame of a, of a board coming up with their number, um, which is real for them. You know, when you talk about how it impacted him for depression and, and other elements, these these are things that you end up with 50,000 Newcastle fans booing you, you know, as a home player. You know, these are elements that I think have been taken away from the game. And players are, are probably able to play a bit more uh, freely like they did back in the day when they were on the park, you know, with, without any uh, parents or fans scrutinising every touch they make. Yeah, and we're we're seeing it in the numbers too. I just uh, in the Bundesliga, at least eighteen matches, uh, three home teams have won, of the yeah. of the eighteen matches. It's um, it's pretty wild how that that has changed, which is normally where teams collect a lot of their points throughout the course of a season. But uh, as as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, um, Alfonso Davies is is really taking the spotlight, not just uh, for for Canada and, and and being able to see him. Uh, mainstream for a lot of people, but uh, across the world, he continues to impress. Uh, what what are you seeing in his development over these last few months? Because it has been uh, quite rapid. Yeah, I think it just comes back to that consistency, and I think that's that's a, a big step for Alfonso. I think a lot of a lot of young players struggle to to make that step where they burst onto the scene and. You know, they have their first two to three games and then they have that sort of, oh, shit moment where this is happening now and they start to feel that the, the genuine scrutiny, expectation and some of the consequences of errors that they'll make. And I think for Alfonso, he's, he seems to have taken a step past that moment. And, and, you know, you'll speak to some of the pro players and they'll go, oh, yeah, the young guys, they'll have their, their purple patches. We all go through it. Then we have our dip, and then you've got to fight your way back. I think Alfonso had a little bit of that in his first season. You know, I remember him coming in at the Gold Cup, and you could just sense he he wasn't, you know, in the same sort of form he was in when I'd met him a year ago. And he'd had to suffer a bit at Bayern and, and find his way and 
and realized this is probably going to be a lot tougher than I thought. And and I think because he's had that experience, you know, when he's taken his chance, he's just seemed to be a bit more level-headed with it. And you can see how disciplined he is tactically as well. He's he's very, um, very clear on, you know, when he can join, when not to join, and the consequences of when he does join as well. So... I've been really impressed just with the the tactical discipline and and again where he's probably surprised most people is his defensive acumen. Like he's he's got a real good understanding of of that moment of the game, and and I know you know people have said like he, he gets caught out of position. What what you learn with Fonzie when you work with him, his like Fonzie's starting position can be different to any other players. Like people say, oh, yeah, he's always, you know, five yards too high or, you know, three yards too wide and he should be tucked in more. Like he he just knows that he can take those extra steps to cheat because of the pace he's got. And I think people are starting to realise as well that, you know, he defends very uniquely and idiosyncratic to his skill sets. John, what have you seen from Bayern under Hansi Flick that has helped helped the progress of, of Alfonso Davies because it, it really does seem as if that's one of that has been one of the keys to unlocking him. Yeah, I think I think he just he's got that understanding of, of when he when to join and when not to. I mean it, there's a lot, you know, what 80% of the game he plays behind the ball. And he, he holds those good sort of defensive transitional positions where he's he's you know, that last line of, of defence because of his pace. And, and at times he's very clear, like you see it, he's very clear when he can join. And and other players will create that space for him. And, and I've said that, that's a big part of when people understand Alfonso, and and, it, and this is something we learned in CONCACAF, it's, you know, you, you're able as a winger, if it's not that much of a transitional game and you can start to deny space behind, they start to overload that side and, while he can beat one, then he has to beat two and then beat three. And that's not really his strength. His, his strength is, you know, that first touch in space. And I think they, they, their system and structure with, you know, wingers inverting and, and allowing him to to stretch his legs in, in the right moments. And he arrives, you know, with pace. And then he's always getting just top quality distribution to him. You know, it's... It's a dream come true, I guess, for him. But when it opens up, uh, I think everyone trusts that he is going to get forward and and do his do his thing, which he's doing. Hey, every time he seems to get forward, something good happens. It's a it's a good cross or you know a clever little combination. He's he's in a real good rhythm. And that that position, you know, he's he's really uh, owned it, and it's he's almost hybrid with how much he he joins the attack and how he can get back uh, defending as well. I mean, when when you're watching this, how does it um, you know get your tactical mind moving as to what can be the possibilities moving forward with with the options you have on the roster? Well, I think we started it. We we started that process. I'd seen Alfonso play left back. Um, the Whitecaps under Carl Robinson. I remember, you know, having conversations with some of their staff saying, look, like the, the top, top level, that's probably where Fonzie's going to find himself. And, you know, I sort of felt that at times we, we played against low blocks and, you know, teams that you're, you're looking to try and set goal records against, 
And for me, it's, it was always about getting your best attacking players on the pitch. You, you really didn't want to see, you know, players like uh, Hoylette, uh, Jonathan David, you know, Lucas Cavallini, Kyle Lahren, those sort of players on the bench. So it was how do you get, you know, Fonzie onto the field? And, and against certain types of teams where you know they're going to sit off, um, you know, that, that fullback position, he is like a hybrid. It's... It's a winger-type role, and you'd you get a midfielder sitting underneath for him, so he, he didn't have to worry too much about the transition. So I think we've we've gone down that path. We've He's played, I don't know, probably 60% of his international games at fullback uh, for us. And, and and I think just for Canada, you know, there are going to be games where, you know, you'll want Fonzie playing as an out-and-out forward, um, as an out-and-out winger. And there'll be games where he can be more of that hybrid wing back and and provide us with that support from deep positions. And and those are decisions coaches are always gonna make. I think like I say, the hardest decision for me always to make is, you know, how do you get, you know, your best forwards on the field who all of them are in form at the same time and then add your best midfielders and add, you know. You know, it's it's just like trying to fit eight players in five positions. So, you know, Fonzie had given us that flexibility. And and particularly, you know, where people have doubted he's not a left-back. Oh, he can't play left-back for Canada. And, you know, I think people are starting to realise that, you know, that position's a lot more influential in the modern game than, than people would give it credit for. John, you mentioned Jonathan David in your uh, in, in in your discussion a little earlier, and there are rumors out there, of course, that after the successful season he's had, that he's attracted attention from a lot of teams. I mean, there are German teams that were really interested in him. What have you thought of Jonathan's progress this year? And I know that you're in a unique position as his international coach, but what, to your mind, would be a good move for Jonathan David right now? Yeah, I think Jonathan's, um, when, when you meet Jonathan, it's about understanding the personality. And and I've had some, some time now, two, two and a bit years with Jonathan, just to really understand where he's at as a, as a young man. And if there's anyone that's ready for that step as a young man, I think he is. Uh, I think you only had to listen to his interview on Sky Sports recently, and you just get a sense how grounded he is. And, and how clear he is as well. There's no, you know, there's no doubt in his, his own ability that if he goes into a top environment, that he'll only, he'll grow as tall as that ceiling. And, and I think he's aware now that he's reached, he's reached the ceiling at a young age. And, you know, some people will argue, give him another season there. But you've seen this with young players, like it, it, if they have that belief and confidence, and for me, some of that belief and confidence is built into, well, what have I achieved? Well, you know, I stepped on to the men's national team as a 17-year-old. I scored two goals on my debut, become the youngest double scorer. Then I go and score two more. Then I go and become the golden boot winner at the Gold Cup, score a hat-trick, score in pretty much every game I play for, for Canada. Then into the Europa League, scoring goals, scoring goals consistently at his club. You know, his his story and his mind is, if I keep moving forward, I can score goals. And 
at the end of the day, that's what he's proven. He's he's got that ability to score goals, and you'll see this goal scorers. They'll move on to different leagues, and if they're a goal scorer, they'll score goals. And if it's in their mind that that's who they are, they'll keep scoring. So. I'm a big believer that his character's there. Such a solid character for a young man that uh, he'll thrive in any environment uh, he he's put in. How often have you kept in touch with the players during this this period? Yeah, the, the, with the leadership group, we've we've worked behind the scenes on some projects, uh, particularly looking at the ten day window that we spend together and looking at the first 48 hours and and really getting them to to work on when we come back will be stronger and more ready. So that group have been working. Others, it's just been informal connects, just check-ins. For some players, I've been working analytically with them with, you know, some videos of, of areas they need to, you know, to work on for us and even at their clubs. And then, you know, this weekend we had a, a good town hall. We uh, we got all the guys together on Saturday. We, we we just did a few little fun activities and and then, you know, give them some insights into where the football world is internationally. And again, a big stats review on, you know, how the team's tracked and, you know, some of our biggest gaps there. When we get back, we're going to close. So it's been a, you know, you, you don't want to be in people's faces. That's that's the main thing because I think for some of these players like I say it's the first time they've been out of judgment every weekend the scrutiny and 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 some of them are actually just getting to know their families again some of them for the first time they've had a chance to not be selfish and just worry about their performance at a weekend they're yeah they're becoming part of um you know being a better dad and and, and you want to give them that space because this time won't come back for them. Well, I'm hoping it doesn't come back for them, but many of them are, are cherishing it. John, where are we right now in terms of our understanding of what the international calendar might look like when we get out of this? I think it's there's just a lot of unknown. And I feel for anyone that's that's got the job of trying to put this together because... The priority, obviously, is the clubs. We, we have to get the clubs back. You know, the the biggest league in the world still hasn't started yet. Some of the other big leagues are coming online. And and again, I think, you know, while Germany, everything might be going tickety-boo there, you know, will it be the same in Spain or Italy or England when, when football comes back? And then you only have to look at, at MLS again, like the challenges that are faced in our own sort of, North American and, and Canadian Premier League, like one side venues people are talking about. Like we just have to get club football online. So when that comes online, I think international questions can be answered. But until that gets kicked in, it, it's so difficult. It's so difficult to say this window will be open in October, September, November. So FIFA have mooted certain ideas to... Um, to the international communities. And, you know, these have been ideas around extended windows in December. But you, you just don't know. Uh, and I would say it would be hard for us to, to make any uh, assumptions um, around w- when it's coming back. All, all I'm doing is me and the staff and the, the leaders uh, just making sure we, we're ready, we, we're working. 
John, it's uh, it's been really great catching up with you and, and getting some thoughts and some updates on, on where the future is uh, for the Canadian men's national team. We'll keep uh, – We'll keep checking in on Fonzie and Daniil as they get to, to play for their clubs right now, and hopefully we'll have uh, world football back in the next few weeks. I uh, really appreciate the time. Thanks for this. All the best, and thanks again. Take care. There is John Herdman and uh, an unknown pathway ahead for the Canadian men's international team, but uh, at least positive that you have uh, some great young players to continue building around. Uh, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair coming up. Uh, we talked to Alexi Lawless, who believes Alfonso Davies is the best player in the CONCACAF region. We'll discuss more Alfonso Davies next here on A Kick in the Grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Welcome back on a kick in the grass, an Alfonso Davies special as we continue to uh, marvel at the growth and development of this young player. Uh, now joining us, Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair, is Alexi Lawless, soccer analyst, of course, former U.S. Men's International, and uh, you can hear him as well on the State of the Union podcast. How's it going, Alexi? It's going, you know, we're uh, we're muddling through like everybody else. I'm down here in Los Angeles in lockdown. I'm growing hair in places I never thought I could grow nor want to to, uh, to grow and uh, just trying to stay safe and sane like uh, like everybody else out there. But uh, with with some perspective that uh, we're a whole lot better uh, position than a lot of other people around the world that uh, that are struggling. So, uh, this too shall pass and uh, you know, hopefully it it happens sooner rather than later and it's a Whatever that new normal is, it has soccer. So, uh, so that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I do feel a bit lucky uh, here in, in Vancouver. Uh, some things have started to open, including uh, my barber shop. So I was I was finally able to get a haircut, and I do feel like a, a different human. Nice uh, having that having that opportunity uh, over the course of the weekend. But uh, it has been fun having uh, having football back and. Um, it seems like the world is is getting in on Alfonso Davies if they hadn't already. Uh, I saw you've called him the best player in CONCACAF right now. He's had quite the season, hasn't he? Yeah, uh, and this, you know, this in a strange way has only highlighted it uh, because we've seen the the massive increase in numbers out of either desperation or curiosity when it comes to the return of the Bundesliga here and it being the first major league to come back online. And so I think it's just thrown an additional spotlight on him. If you didn't know about him, you are very quickly introduced and uh, very quickly brought up to speed about how good uh, how good he is. And it's, it's getting to that point where he's not just a, a great Canadian player. He's just a great player who happens to be Canadian. He's not just a great young player. He's just a great player. And that, you know, that transition has happened very, very quickly. But you do the things that he is doing, and obviously you do them in that spotlight that is playing for a super club in an elite league. And people are going to nod their heads. They're going to turn their heads. Uh, and they're going to pay attention. And they should because he is a, he's a joy to watch. And he just seems to be getting better and better and more comfortable in this, I don't know what position it actually is, but it's over on the left-hand side there. Uh, and, and it's just fun to watch. And I, I have argued uh, either on, uh, on television uh, with Fox or on our podcasts that we do uh, that this is without a doubt one, uh, and you could argue the best left back, if we're going to call him a left back, 
in the game today, right now. And certainly from a CONCACAF perspective, and he is a CONCACAF player, even though he doesn't necessarily play the same position when we see him in CONCACAF, he is without a doubt, in my estimation, the best CONCACAF player playing in the world today. So, you know, he's, he's headed in a wonderful direction and it's just fun to see. Well, actually, how important do you think was it for him to end up with a coach in Hansi Flick who, A, seems to have his back and B, seems to realize what you just said and, and, you know, and is not afraid to incorporate him into an immensely talented team? Important has that been to his development in general for soccer player? I guess any athlete, Alexi, you, you do need to have that coach that believes in you at some point, don't you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's crucial and it can overcome you know, some weaknesses that you have, it can make you a better player because we all know that the game isn't just about the physical part. Uh, it's also about the mental part. And having somebody that you know believes in you and have the conf- and has the confidence to put you out there. And look, it's not just with, uh, with Alfonso Davies. Uh, we, we've seen, you know, even Thomas Muller, a guy that has won a World Cup and is already a legend. We've seen this rebirth of him and what he can do. And so, yeah, I mean, like a coach, a manager, whatever you want to call it, somebody on that sideline that has your back and is in your corner, that can make all the difference. And it's fun. And and by the way, it it it, it works both ways because it's not it's not all about being good. Everybody's talented. Everybody's good. A lot of the time it's it's the it's the moment that you are in a situation. It's situational. It's uh, it's the coach. It's injuries. It's all those different things. And if you can have a coach that just you're not their cup of tea, and you, it doesn't mean you're not good, but you might have to go someplace else. So not only is Alfonso Davies in a environment that puts a spotlight on him because of the size of the club, but he also has the confidence of the club through Hansi Flick and through others there that this is a guy that they are going to nurture. This is a guy that they are going to give the benefit of the doubt to. This is a guy that they are going to play. And in doing so, they're going to win games. They're going to, that asset that is the player is going to appreciate and that value that you have if and when you want to to uh, to sell him or move him on. I don't see that happening anytime soon, but uh, if if you want to do that, that value of that player has just dramatically increased because you believed in him and you gave him the platform to do what you believed he could do. And, and there's just a there's just a few things that Davies does that has been so impressive to me. I mean, to be as tactically astute as he is to mm-hmm. to jump into this Bayern team and have success at that position, make it his own. You know, he's essentially maybe in a few years we're calling this the Davies position. Yep. The way that he's playing it right now, uh, and he's done it both in the Bundesliga and in the Champions League, as we saw what he did to Chelsea in that tie there. But he's got all those things. He's got the skill. He's got the dribbling ability. But the fact is. You know, that pace just yeah. gives him something that most other footballers just don't have, right? Like he's just he's got such a, a bigger margin for error in that position than other people do because of how quick he is. Yep, it it is the trump card, and it and it, it he what what's interesting to me is even at a young age he's he's already started to harness it and to use it with a maturity that uh, you know is, that is beyond his years because. Look, you can make up for mistakes, either your own or others with that speed, but eventually you'll get caught out. Somebody smarter than you or somebody even faster than you. Now, there's nobody really faster 
Um, although there always is. We, haven't just, we just haven't seen it yet. Uh, and it might not come yeah. for a while. But there are certainly people that are going to be smarter than every player out there at a, cer- at a certain point. And so your ability to react. And what I'm seeing now is, yes, there are those emergency situations where we ooh and on. Ah, he makes up ground like it's nothing <laughs> we've seen before and is able to snuff out a promising attack or uh, a mistake that he possibly made. And that's where it gets into the situation now where that position that you were talking about it, it forces him, in a good way, to get up the field and to expose himself. And against better teams, they they might look to exploit that. And time and time again, we are seeing that it's not that he's getting caught out of position. It's just inherent in going forward, you're not always going to score a goal. You're not always going to keep the ball. And then his ability to get back and other people to cover for him, it's not just all about him, but, but certainly his ability to get back and to make those tackles and to make up that ground, he's using it. He's using it, as I said, with a much more uh, experienced and mature type of approach in harnessing it. So you can't just always rely that that is going to get you out of trouble because in the, in, in the ultimate moment, it might not be there. And that could be, you know, that could be problematic. Alexi, why has the Bundesliga been such a successful starting ground for so many North American players? I think it's cultural. Uh, I think they look at North American players in a different way than many other leagues do. And other leagues, I think, much more so uh, look down on the league and therefore the players and aren't as open and um, willing to take a chance. Uh, And I'm not talking about the business part of it. Everybody gets the business part of it. uh, And that's certainly a part sometimes of the strategy of of, uh, North American players. But I just think that the the cultural um, willingness to accept the inherent uh, part that that focuses on young players, Uh, they they, for whatever reason, I mean, I don't know what ultimately it is, but it's a good thing to have from a development standpoint. The Bundesliga not only likes watching young players, but likes playing young players. And it doesn't matter where they are from. And there's a real appreciation both from internally the people that are making the decisions and externally the people that are watching it that they they like to watch that and they're okay with that. Whereas in other leagues, I think sometimes it's why should I have to stick around and watch this player develop? Um, and it's look, there's not there's not one right or wrong reason. It's just it makes it much more attractive and appealing to a younger player, and therefore a much easier path to kind of go through a Bundesliga system. And it exists not just in in one or two teams. It's all the teams. They seem to they seem to do that. So I, it's it's really just a cultural thing, I think. Alexi, what have you made of the football we've seen so far out of the Bundesliga? So I think it's just been a fascinating thing to watch because, look, we are living in unprecedented times, and this is nothing the likes of which any of us have gone through. And to see the Bundesliga come back online uh, as this, you know, canary in a coal mine and this test case and this this potential to show pathways for others, um, I think that if, if you're giving them a grade, you give them an A. And, and it's a little apples and oranges because we all know that Germany, in the way that they handled the situation and just the reality of the situation over there, uh, was very different than England and Italy and, and the United States and other places uh, around the world. And so they had the ability to come back quicker um, and safer, I guess it would be. All of the protocol, and if you read like the 50-page the uh, uh 
manual about what's going on. It's amazing the detail, but you know it's German, so they, <laughs> you can ex- you can expect that. Uh, but they've followed it. It's uh, it's you know it looks like they are continuing to follow it. What I'm really f- interested in is the week to week tweaks and changes because everybody's watching. And I, when I say everybody, not just MLS and uh, EPL and soccer leagues out there, I'm talking about all sports are watching. And there is a competition, make no mistake, because when sports and leagues do come back online, they are going to be held to, uh, to the level of what the Bundesliga does. And so, for example, last week, um, I don't know about how it was in Canada, but last week in the United States, uh, when we showed the Bundesliga, it was empty stadiums, as it is for everybody. But we didn't have any enhanced audio. So all we heard was the players on the field and the coaches screaming, yelling. And I thought it's stark, it's eerie, and I, I think that the... the uh, the interest will wane on that. This weekend, we had the uh, uh, the new enhanced audio where they're piping in crowd noise, and that's you know that's only going to I think be uh, be more enhanced and and used more going forward. I think we'll see top types of you know virtual crowds, all of that different stuff to appeal to the TV audience, which is the only audience that matters right now uh, because nobody is actually in the stadium. So I think that there's an opportunity, and maybe we're being forced to be creative and uh, to do things that are outside the uh, outside the box. And that's a good thing. And a lot of stuff will get thrown on the wall. Some of it will stick. Uh, some of it won't. But I'll be interested to see what what continues even after these these challenging times go away, what stays, you know, the five substitute uh, uh, rule uh, or any other things that are implemented going forward. But it's just fascinating. It's fun to watch. I, I think we all agree that it's better than nothing, but that doesn't necessarily make it good or that it can't be better. Having said that, I think the Bundesliga has done a really, really good job. 18 matches, only three home teams yeah. have won. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Because of humans, because this is a game that still involves humans. Uh, And those humans that are wearing the uh, referee uniform uh, bring all of their their own baggage and and bias, and they are impacted and affected uh, and influenced each and every time by their surroundings. And when you have... 40 to 80,000 people, depending on where you are, screaming and yelling at you, you can be coerced, whether you think so or not. And so I think that's what we're seeing. Now, some people say it's it's too small a sample size, and that, that may be true. And there's certainly some games where, even in normal times, the away team, you could you can make a, a good case for betting on them uh, winning. But, I mean, like you said, three out of 18. So there there is definitely, I think, an effect. It'll just be interesting to see as we go along, as players become more accustomed to this new normal, does it then change and there, there is kind of an advantage. But I do think that it, it, it infects, I guess it, it would be infects and affects uh, the referee out there. And I think that we are seeing that play out in terms of the calls that are made or not made. And ultimately, the just that human feeling as players of oh, you're going into somebody else's home and therefore it's that much more difficult. You can't put your finger on it. You can't describe it. There's no data or analytics that shows why this happens, but every player feels that, regardless of how good a team you are, I think that that somehow has been alleviated or in maybe some cases completely taken away. And therefore, that advantage that those home teams had, even if they were not as good as the team that they were playing, but it helped to at least make it competitive has gone away. Alexi, what lessons can MLS take from this startup? You know, as we get ready for what we think will be a sort of hub city format. Yeah. I mean, so this this Orlando uh, 
I guess it's still a rumor at this point, although it's been widely reported, um, is going to be really interesting because it, it goes back to what I said about the compare and contrast that's going to happen. This is a, a standalone type of tournament that is going to be this stopgap, uh, theoretically, uh, f- uh, waiting for the the return to your home market where you then will start playing empty stadium games. And I just, I worry that in this environment down in, uh, down in Disney in Orlando, um, that it will look... It'll look minor league. It will look high school. It will look like a, honestly, like spring training, uh, you know, mm-hmm. or preseason type of event. And I, I don't want that because it's going to make MLS look like that. And look, MLS, we all know, is very concerned with the optics and how they look. They want to be considered a major league. They want to be in that company at all times, whether it's the product that they're putting on the field, whether it's Don Garber being involved when the president of the United States calls leaders of leagues. All of that kind of stuff is important to them. And so I, I don't know what they're going to do, but I, I'm imagining that right now uh, and and many days before, there are people thinking about how they're going to produce this. What is this ultimately going to look? Because if it pales in comparison to the Bundesliga, that's a bad look for Major League Soccer. Yeah, and, and that's... Um... I think that's a concern for for all of us here right now with with how MLS decides on this on this return to play. Um, but there's also the the labor negotiation going on too, and <laughs> yeah. you know this is this is a, a a group of players that has has really had to fight and claw for a lot of rights over the last number of years, and and now this puts them in a difficult spot. Um, what do, what do you make of of that part of the return to play right now for MLS? Um, I think it's delicate, but I also think that there's an opportunity. Uh, and, and I'm not being crass or anything, but you are asking the players to do something that um, that they didn't sign up for. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they shouldn't do it, and it doesn't mean that they can't do it. Obviously, there's safety concerns. But if, if you get over those, the decision uh, and therefore the agreement from the players to go and spend whatever ends up being 10 weeks or, or however many in sequestered in, albeit a wonderful location uh, and, and a beautiful hotel, if you make it safe, they're still away from their families. There are, there are players with medical issues, like I said. There are players with uh, pregnancies either happening or have just happened. Uh, obviously, you're away from your family. And look, I, I, it's they're professional athletes, and you adjust and you do what you need to do, especially if it's something that is going to enable you to continue to have a job. And this is your product. This is your league. And therefore, this is your employer, and hopefully your employer for many years. You want to, you want to do that. But I also think that they're going to get something in return for agreeing to do this. And you know, whether it's an extension in another year on the CBA or whether it's concessions that they didn't get in the latest negotiation, even though CBA hasn't, hasn't been ratified yet, um, there's going to be some sort of give and take. And, and, and you know, they still haven't come out exactly with how much of a pay cut the players are going to take or are willing to take. And it's never going to be what the league wants. And so you're going to, you're going to meet somewhere in the, in the middle, but this is going to be a negotiation. But I do think that unlike, let's say major league baseball, I think that there's a much greater emphasis and recognition and respect for the fact that this league, it, it needs to play um, from a business perspective. And look, this is this is a painful time, and there is going to be continued pain felt. And you know, this is this is serious stuff for 
you know, leagues that are making a whole lot more money and a whole lot more solid than Major League Soccer. And while, while, it's, while it's 25 years in, and not only has it survived, but in many cases thrived, it doesn't mean that it can't go away. And that's not, a, that's not a threat. That's just the reality of the world that we live in right now and that pecking order where we find Major League Soccer. Yeah, hopefully we'll uh, get MLS and uh, all the leagues back uh, over the next little while. Uh, check out Alexi Lawless on the State of the Union podcast and, of course, uh, soccer analyst with Fox. Uh, thanks so much for doing this, Alexi. Appreciate the time. Stay safe and stay healthy. Thanks, guys. Uh, so many different hurdles that the MLS will have to overcome here uh, as they try to get back uh, to playing. But uh, we do know La Liga is nearing its return. That and more coming up in the stories we missed. Injury time is next on A Kick in the Grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Final segment here on A Kick in the Grass. Dan Riccio and Jeff Blair and Alfonso Davies special and we close it out since uh, we spent so much time talking about Alfonso Davies today uh, with the stories that we missed on injury time. Uh, Jeff and La Liga is getting the all clear to resume play the week of June 8th. They are targeting June 11th for their first match back. Yeah, they're targeting the uh, Seville Real Betis derby, which makes a, an awful lot of sense for that league. And, you know, I, I think as you heard Alexi Lalas say, this is... The Bundesliga start has been so smooth. It's almost been scary smooth that it really has set the bar for other leagues. And I'm going to be paying attention to Spain because Spain was hit much harder than Germany by the coronavirus. It had a more difficult time getting out of it. There are all sorts of political issues in Spain that didn't exist in Germany. There's a lot at stake here for world soccer based on how La Liga comes out of this. Yeah, and uh, still the title race very much in hand. Barcelona ahead of uh, Real Madrid by two points. They do not have any remaining matches against each other uh, for an El Clasico. Speaking of Barca, they are under pressure to sell players and balance their books. Uh, they're saying that they need to make at least 70 million euros in uh, <laughs> in sales uh, over the next uh, few weeks before June 30th, Jeff. I don't know. Uh, I I'm going to say this is going to be tough to make it happen. Yeah, this you know this is kind of a an effect of the of the pandemic we haven't we haven't really discussed, but we already know that Barca's told Arsenal, look, you can have you can have Dembele for thirty seven million. That's a discounted price. And Danny, I think the market's going to be fascinating because there will be a lot of teams under a lot of pressure to hold the line on spending. Conversely, there are going to be a lot of teams that are going to look to offload players. And I really wonder what type of an impact it has, for example, on the market for a guy like Paul Pogba. Maybe Paul Pogba spends another year at Manchester United because there's just not enough money in the system for somebody to pry him away from, uh, from, from Manchester United. And there's a lot of discussion about putting caps on things, uh, salaries mm -hmm. certainly, and uh, maybe even transfer fees moving forward. So uh, that is... I can see trade is... deals, Dan. I can see trade deals where you throw a young player in almost as a make -way. I can see that's where we're going here. Yeah, and uh, that may be the way we see a lot of deals this summer, including for Manchester United, whose debts rose over $400 million in a report this past week. Um, I, I think my takeaway here is, Jeff, if it's bad for them, what about the rest of football? Like, if, if things are bad for one of the richest clubs on the planet, like, how is, you know, the, the, the bottom of the table side doing right now? Yeah, I have a lot of concern as a, as a Manchester United fan. I mean, I've had concern for 
five or six years right now. I, I don't know how long this thing is sustainable. I'm not saying the club isn't. The club's always going to be there. But I just don't know how much longer this ownership group uh, can hang on to Manchester United. You know, we had we had David Sampson on our show in Toronto, former Miami Marlins president, talking about keep an eye on the number of teams that come out of the pandemic, not necessarily in danger of folding, but the number of teams that come out that end up being sold in North America. I wonder if we may not see some major sales of some big soccer clubs uh, this summer or certainly in the next year as a result of hits owners have taken in other, in, in other businesses because of the pandemic. I really think we may see that. Uh, well, Manchester United also uh, trying to sue football manager. So um, uh, excuse my French when I say screw them. Uh, N'Golo Conte has been excused from Chelsea training. He may not return this season as the Premier League eyes a June 12th or 19th return date. Uh, but this is interesting just in the sense he's scared to return, Jeff, and, and is not um, fully ready to uh, embrace or to take on uh, the challenges that the, the pandemic may may bring to him. So uh, this may be a bit of a precedent set for athletes, uh, not, maybe not just in soccer, but around the world. Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, because if you do a lot of reading, there is a real movement, especially in the UK right now, amongst athletes of black and uh, invisible black athletes and other athletes who are members of visible minority groups concerned about how the coronavirus has disproportionately impacted their community in the UK compared to other communities. And there are some athletes who are wondering, you know, first of all, I mean, is there a genetic connection? I don't know if there's a genetic connection. I think we're all the same. But there are a lot of athletes who are saying, hey, a lot of uh, black athletes and visible minority athletes who are saying, look, if I play, um, am I going to put at risk a family member who may already be predisposed to a risk? So. Yeah, it's, I mean, the big question in all of this, the big question in every sport, Dan, is what do you do with the player who says, I just don't feel comfortable enough coming back? He won't be the last one. I guarantee you he won't be the last one. I guarantee you there will be baseball players who feel that way. I guarantee you you're going to have basketball players who feel that way. And I guarantee you might even have a hockey player who feels that way. And we're just going to have to deal with it. And teams are going to have to be respectful. It's uh, it's going to be a fascinating few weeks as, as all these leagues try to really get back and plan. Jeff, uh, another fantastic edition of Injury Time. Uh, we uh, went into Fergie time once again, but hey, uh, we're allowed. Uh, we've, uh, we've always appreciated you, the listener. You can find us now on uh, Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. Uh, check us out on Twitter at SNJeffBlair, and I'm at DanRicho650. Uh, closing out another edition of A Kick in the Grass on the Sportsnet Radio Network.